Hi, so um, this is a recording of the special live edition of Imaginary Advice, recorded last month at Batsy Art Centre. Um, I decided not to include the full show within the podcast because some parts are just too visual, basically. Um, for example, on the night I presented a kind of pastiche Adam Curtis documentary that I made. Um, I also did a, a, a video poem inspired by a strange camera angle during an Irish news broadcast. And, uh, and, and neither of those pieces are included here. I just don't think it would work on the podcast. But I am going to release those pieces as videos to my Patreon subscribers later this week. So if you donate $5 a month, you'll get sent a link to the video poem. If you donate $15 or more, you'll get sent both the video poem and also this 30-minute Adam Curtis documentary that I made. Um, But even with those bits aside, there was so much great stuff in the show, which is all included here in this podcast episode, particularly the readings uh, from my two guests, which were both fantastic. I hope you enjoy it. Um, The show opened with some footage of newsreader Evan Davies that I had recut to serve as an opening to the show. Here he is now. Welcome to a live performance from Ross Sutherland, who likes to kidnap horses and emerge with an intimate personal story. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's too kind. Uh, hello. Um, thank you so much for uh, being here and um, sitting so patiently through my favorite Enya song. So welcome to uh, this live edition of uh, the Imagine Advice podcast uh, recorded here uh, at Battersea Art Centre in uh, the historic London borough of Wandsworth. Uh, thank you also so much to uh, Evan Davies for that lovely introduction uh, recorded specifically uh, for tonight. Uh, now, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Imaginary Advice is a storytelling podcast, uh, sometimes featuring true stories, uh, sometimes works of fiction, uh, sometimes like essays uh, on storytelling and how storytelling uh, shapes the way we see the world. Uh, over the next hour, um, we're going to do a bit of all three. We're going to do like a kind of smorgasbord. There's going to be uh, uh, a personal account, a, a piece of fiction, and also uh, uh, an essay. I'm going to be aided tonight uh, by two guest writers of impeccable standing, ladies and gentlemen. If I ever was to accidentally kill someone, this is the people that I would like to bring me in. It's uh, Joe Dunthorne and Chris Hicks. Uh, More from them uh, in a second. My name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, I look like this. If you know me from listening to the podcast, um, you you might well have never seen my face before. And I know from personal experience, it can be really hard to retcon a voice. Uh, Podcasting is an intimate medium. Like we carry around these extra voices in our heads. Like, of course, like we build mental images around those voices. It can be hard to walk that shit back. Steve Lamack, the uh, BBC indie rock DJ. Uh, is from the same part of Essex as me, right? Uh, Ten years ago, someone pointed him out to me at a gig 
Uh, about two minutes later, I had the worst migraine of my life. It's a true story. I had to leave the gig uh, and go home. Uh, now, you might say it's a coincidence. I mean, it probably is a coincidence. But just maybe Steve Lamac's appearance set off some kind of logic bomb in my brain. And I, I just had this kind of acute attack of... Uh, cognitive dissonance you see like I loved Steve Lamac like I, I still do um, but the person that I saw uh, in that shared seven gig uh, <laughs> like was not my Steve Lamac it, it still isn't uh, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that the physical manifestation of Steve Lamac is worse or any better than my internal mental Steve Lamac it's just different but I know which of the two I fell in love with it's this one and sadly this is the Steve Lamac that feels the more real to me. That's a disturbing thought. But I've been trying to unpick it. It's like um, back in my youth, back when Steve Lamac was invisible, I had more ownership over him. I could subconsciously curate Steve Lamac to align him with my inner desires and cultural protocols. He was just an outline then, just a mirror to reflect back to me. The Steve Lamac... I needed. I felt I knew Steve Lamac so much better when he was invisible. There was such a sense of certainty about our relationship. But living in the real world is about sacrificing certainty, right? Like, I don't want to live in my fake, fictionalized universe. I want to live in the real world, even if that real world feels more like disorientating and emotionally muted. I have to embrace the real, visible Steve Lamac. We all do, figuratively speaking. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I am your Steve Lamac. But I promise I will not be the last, right? Like time and time again, as we grow old, we will encounter situations where invisible things suddenly become visible to us. And again and again and again, we will have to face the paradox where seeing something makes it feel less real. You might not yet be convinced, and that's fine. Let me tell you one more story. Same theme. When Steven Spielberg made the film Jaws back in 1975, he spent approximately $1.2 million on the shark's hydraulic jaw. Uh, the shark broke down on pretty much the first day of filming and pretty much never worked again. Spielberg switched things around. He worked through all the scenes on land first, but like he knew he was gonna be in serious trouble as soon as he got on the water. Uh, the shark, uh, which he named Bruce, um, he named it after one of his lawyers, uh, the, the, the shark just looked completely lifeless and, and fake. When a photograph of Bruce got leaked to the press, investors started pulling out of the film. It was uh, a disaster. Like Spielberg knew, like if he didn't finish this film, there's no way that he would ever be allowed to make another one. He would be the shark's only real victim. Um, so that was when he had the brainwave, right? Suddenly like he knew how to save the film. Get rid of the shark. Cut the shark out of the shark film. And that's what he did. He cut it and he cut it and he cut it. What did he leave in its place? Empty water. That's it. After all, what is the one thing scarier than seeing a shark? How about not seeing a shark? <laughs> like how about a shark made of nothing? Because if Jaws is invisible, 
but you can never escape him. Like invisible jaws, he can be on any beach, any swimming pool. My girlfriend doesn't know I'm going to say this, but like uh, what, what she told me that when she was a kid, she was even scared of going to the toilet alone in case, in case jaws attacked. Um, sorry, Lizzie. Um, jaws became believable as soon as they got rid of the shark. Seeing is believing, uh, said Elvis Presley, but actually the opposite appears to be true, right? It's when we don't see that we really start to believe, unencumbered by the vagaries and disappointments of the real. It's a scary thought how much more emotion we invest in our internal worlds compared to the external. How much more we can be moved more powerfully by the invisible than the visible. So this felt like a perfect subject uh, for the podcast, uh, because in a way, well, this is exactly about the boundary between the imagination and the real, right? And, and that's pretty much puts it square in the middle of my interests. Uh, what happens when we try to make the invisible visible? What happens when we try to see Steve Lamack, uh, if I can coin that as an idiom? Uh, uh, tonight, we pitch consumer fantasy versus product reality on an extra special episode. Imaginary advice. Uh, please welcome to the stage our first guest speaker, Chris Hicks. Okay, uh, hello everybody. Uh, I want to talk to you today uh, about disability. Uh, specifically my disability, which is a disability that I'm most interested in. Um, I have a condition called anosmia. I was born with no olfactory sense, so absolutely no sense of smell. It's a distinct lack of applause for that there. I thought there'd be more like um, more recognition of how impossibly brave it is for me to get up here tonight and talk about my noble, everyday struggle. I mean, you give the impression of a group of people who are basically thinking that's not a real disability. It, it wouldn't stop you doing anything. I bet you don't even get a blue parking badge. But it is a disability, like, I don't have the ability to smell things, okay, that has to count, okay? I never said it was a disability you'd be into, I never said it was a banger, okay? Now, um, part of the problem is I don't look disabled, right, whatever that means, like, people look at me and they think, if anything, he's probably got some, like, extra abilities, like, look at his gigantic fingers, they're like, disgusting, overstuffed Chesterfield sofas, he must have something in there, right? But... Just because you can't see anosmia doesn't mean it doesn't affect me, and, and nobody knows that it does. Even people I've known my whole life and told about it countless times still literally never remember. They open the car door at the coast and they say, ah, smell that air. And I say, dude, you know I can't smell that air. And they go, oh, sorry. Yeah. They cut into freshly baked bread and they go, wonderful, here, get a load of that. And I say, mate, you know I can't get a load of that. And they go, oh, sorry, sorry. They open bags of skunk and go, oh, mate, mate, this shit, mate, this shit right here, this shit is cray-cray, check it. And I say, mum, you know I can't check it. <laughs> because I can't smell anything, right? I mean, people always ask me to confirm that when I first tell them. They say, what, you can't smell like anything? And so I run like a a mental check. I just sort of go through all the smells to make sure there's not one that I love, but I've just kind of forgotten in all the excitement. So I go to like, you know, bacon, coffee, cut grass, sawn wood, my girlfriend. Go, nope, yeah, no, I can't smell anything. That's what anosmia is. So I say, yeah, 
I can't smell anything. And they say, what? Like, nothing ever. Which is a fair question, right? Because as far as they're concerned, anosmia could just be some shit that I'm into, like, at the moment. Like, you know when some people say, like, oh, I'm vegetarian, but you're like, I remember you eating a chicken sandwich, like, three weeks ago. So, like, good on you, but let's see how it works out in the long term before we start, like, declaring it's like a status, you know? Luckily, I've been exhaustively tested. I know that I will never smell. I've got no smell receptors, but um, even if I had smell receptors, uh, I have a big hole in my brain uh, where they would attach to uh, because God works in mysterious ways. So um, even if they could grow new smell receptors, which they definitely can't, so don't worry, um, they'd be wasted on me. Like good Wi-Fi is on a spaniel. I will never smell anything. So I say, yeah, yeah, not ever. And they say, well... You're lucky in a way, because there's a lot of bad smells in the world, which might be true. I mean, I am lucky in a way, but it's the same way that blind people are lucky. They don't have to worry about abstract painting being quite annoying sometimes. <laughs> so like, nobody knew I had anosmia. There was like no sign of it. None of my other senses were sharp, except my sense of entitlement, which is like really exquisite. Um, <laughs> but my brother was born, and he was walking and talking and asking about smells. And my mum said, what's going on here? So we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, don't worry, it's glandular. It will sort itself out as you get older. Come back when you're 18. But we went back when, we were, when I was 18, and uh, they said, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a shelf of bone blocking the receptors, and it's too risky to operate now, but come back in 10 years, and it won't be. So we went back when I was 30, and they said, no, you've got a big hole in your brain and no smell receptors. Done. Right, um, and they thought, they thought it was genetics. They started asking me all these like, developmental questions. They said, can you grow a beard? And I said, I have a beard. And they said, uh, <laughs> Do you, do you have normal relationships? And I said, like, I, mm, I like to think so, yeah. And they said, they said, are you full size? I said, like, for me, 100%. And then they said, do you have club finger? And I said, what's club finger? And I held out my hand, and all the doctors went, ooh, yeah, that's club finger. So club finger is when your finger in profile is excessively round, right? So... Um, I didn't get it, right? And I still don't get it, right? And it felt like it was like designed for me not to get, right? Like a sort of in-joke, right? L like a conspiracy, like the rest of smell. Because like a conspiracy, sometimes there are things about smell that like don't add up. Like throughout my life, flatmates and colleagues have always told me that I wouldn't eat this food or that food if I could smell it. But they're always like different foods, right? And because like a conspiracy, there are things put in place to discourage me from investigating. Like every Google search brings up research which links... Uh, loss of smell to decreased function in the amygdala and decreased happiness in rats, right? Every anosmic support group is full of people who used to be able to smell and say unanimously by way of support that without smell, taste is meaningless, life is empty, and love is impossible. Just cutting into the recording to explain that uh, Chris is about to start projecting well-known perfume adverts onto the screen behind him. And even though you won't be able to see them, uh, you can still enjoy Chris's very accurate descriptions of the images. Because every perfume advert I've ever seen seems to be made to infuriate me with unanswerable questions. Eep. Hey Chris, you know how Kate Moss smells in, in a dark room right after you've knocked her off, but right before she runs out of patience? <laughs> oh, you don't? Shame. We all do. Eep. Hey Chris... You know the unmistakable musk of a Spanish biker daring you across a sweltering Barcelona square 
to make fun of the fact that his overprotective mother makes him carry his adult sister on his shoulder when they go out. <laughs> we all do. But Chris, you must know the rich aroma that, that fills your being whenever you sit down in a derelict house of mirrors to put on your makeup, only to realize that you're already wearing full makeup. <laughs> we, we all do. But, but Chris, please don't tell me you can't even appreciate the cloying stench of an imaginary star filling a hypothetical void of perfect black hard vacuum on the day it's first eclipsed suddenly and perfectly by something huge and unknowable. Huh? We, we all know that smell. Okay, Chris, but you're obliged to at least confirm that you know the simple scent of a breezy spring sunshine bathing you in your favorite pink dress as you laugh in the face of a vanquished foe. So these are the things that adverts ask me all day, every day. And uh, mostly it doesn't bother me too much. There'll always be things you don't know. It's not a conspiracy. In this case, this is kind of like about me, but it's not pointed at me. And there are jokes that I understand better than those of you who can smell. I mean, I say jokes, I actually mean um, farts. Now, you probably think you get farts. You probably think you understand they're funny because it's like a, a, a whiff of, of like poo gas that comes out of a bumhole and makes everybody think of the bumhole, right? That's what you think. But the farts betray you because they were written for me, all right? What a fart actually is, is an invisible force that comes out of a bumhole, right? And affects everybody except for me, right? <laughs> More than that, you might enjoy like fictional farts and you might enjoy your own farts, but you don't enjoy anybody else's. I do, right? I love everybody's farts. When my dog farts on my girlfriend's face in bed at night, it's honestly one of the best things that ever happens. It happens, <laughs> happens all the time, okay? So, like, so yeah, I enjoy farts from part to finish, and I feel very special to be able to do so. So maybe in a way I am lucky, because there are a lot of bad smells out there, and a lot of them hilarious. Cheers, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please get that applause going. For Joe! Hello. You know, in poetry <clears throat> anthologies, they, I guess in all literary anthologies, the biographies at the back are all written in the third person, even though everyone is has written it themselves. Um, <laughs> And it's this weird thing of, I guess, finding a way to excuse like just tremendous arrogance and just listing all the great things about yourself. You just give yourself a bit of distance. Joe Dunthorne, just an unbelievable writer, and uh, <laughs> he's just, you know. Uh, and I was talking to Ross earlier, and Ross was saying, because you get this quite often, people put in like a quirky final line. If you've had a funny job, then sometimes you say, you know, was a uh, whatever what's your end uh, at this point i tell the audience the awful cringing joke that i used to include at the end of my artist biography but i've deleted it from here because i can um so i, I was thinking about I, i'm always sometimes more interested in reading the biographies at the back of a poetry anthology than the poems um and I wondered if it would be possible to write a story that was 
just made up of those contributors' notes. And I have concluded from this week that no, it's really fucking hard. <laughs> um, you pretty much can't do that, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, and I'm going to read it with the help of um, two friends from the audience. I say friends, I've never met Zara before. Zara, hi. You've agreed to be one of the readers. Please, could you come and sit on this awkward space down here? And also, Eleanor, thank you very much. And Chris and Ross. Kara Ayet's second collection, The Trees, Ahem, The Trees, will be published this spring. It's clear she has spent quite some time trying to find a way to elegantly write that she won the Talk Talk Fiber Optics New Writers of the Internet Age bursary. <laughs> has tried it in brackets, has tried abbreviating it as TTFNWIAB, tried calling herself bursary winning, but it's all horrible. She lives in Nottingham. Adam Levin, born 1985 as a playwright, translator, and the editor of this landmark poetry anthology. <laughs> though his biography is included here among the other contributors as though he were just anyone, This is an act of disingenuous modesty because he is also the sole producer and financier of this slim volume. And bringing it to print has been truly life-changing. Changing even the parts of Adam's life that Adam didn't want changed. Indiscriminate and remorselessly life-changing. Ha ha, he sure hopes you enjoy this book. Adam was born and brought up in Bath, but at time of writing, lives in King's Lynn. Mary Beaker's violently truncated biographical note is intended to indicate her distrust of this project. <laughs> Maybe certain poets distrusted Adam Levin because he was not known in the scene. But not being known in the scene is exactly why Adam Levin was perfectly positioned to destroy existing hierarchies. <laughs> Adam Levin is proud to say this book was assembled with a completely open submissions policy. No sifting, no soliciting, no cliques, no cabals, no reputations, just language clean and true. And more than that, Adam Levin went out of his way to reach poets who live outside the smug urban centers. That's London. <laughs> and discover authentic voices from every corner of our country. For postal submissions, Adam listed his home address, a small top floor flat he shared with his then wife and one month old child. For the first few days, he almost didn't think any poems would come. But soon enough, they came, poems, and of course many were bad. 
bad poems from men, yes, naturally, but also bad poems from women and some bad poems from people who did not give their names because they wanted their poems to be judged on literary merit alone, which was fine because they had no merit, they were horrendous. <laughs> and because Adam was no fool, he had been expecting bad poems and he read them, every one. Peter Daniel's fourth collection, the animatronic Tyrannosaurus of Guadalajara, is forthcoming with Welt Press. Despite good reviews, he has been overlooked for all the previous generational anthologies. And so, although he did sense something a little off about this one, he didn't try too hard to discover the source of that offness, because sometimes it's just nice to believe that good news is just good news and not second-guess it. Peter is the editor of Unpersoned, a prize-winning book of creative transcriptions of immigration interviews obtained from the Freedom of Information Act. And even though the book is over a decade old now, he'll be damned if it ever leaves his bio. Hi, me again. Adam Levin's third-person biographical note. Now, it goes without saying that everyone likes to get post. It feels good. From all across the UK, they arrived. Brown envelopes, white ones, franked stamps, those cellophane, cellophane address windows. Letter for Mr. Adam Levin. Parcel for Mr. Adam Levin, editor. Or sometimes package for Dr. Adam Levin. Even though Adam never finished his PhD, lots of people don't. <laughs> So the point is, Adam Levin often felt good, standing barefoot on his front doorstep of a morning, looking up and down his street, holding a bundle of letters so large that the postman had left a wide rubber band around them, the kind of bands they use to clamp shut lobster's big claws. As Adam walked the 54 steps up to his top floor flat, he tried not to get too hopeful. There might be no great poems today, but he should be proud that he was the person willing to read them, even those written in purple felt tip, especially those written in purple felt tip. And yet sometimes Adam is not too proud to admit that while climbing the 54 stairs, he did sometimes take a little time to gaze up at the slip of blue visible through the skylight and whisper, send me a poem I can be proud of. And lo, Monday, October 14. Adam's son had recently learned to smile, which was good timing for the arrival of this anthology's first great poem. The poem was called Fake Lake, and the poet was called Joy Gould, and Adam had never heard of her or her poem, and he laughed out loud, even though it was a sad poem. He laughed out loud and kissed his son on his tiny damp lips. He read the poem to his baby boy, who loved it, and to his then-wife, and she, who was not big into poetry, said it did seem good. <laughs> he googled the poet's name and found nothing which was wonderful. I could kiss you, Joy Gould, he said to the sky, wherever you are. Adam checked the postmark. She was from Aberdeen. Perfect, absolutely perfect. Joy, which meant joy, and gould, which sounded like Scottish gold. Joy, gould. 
of Aberdeen, and it really lifted him, and him feeling lifted made his wife happy, and his child was just naturally good-natured. Gabriella Fellman was born in 1993 in Brighton and now lives in Salzburg. She instantly thinks less of a magazine the moment they take one of her poems. One day, she hopes to lose respect for The New Yorker. Hi, Adam's biography here. In the long run, of course, the fact that Adam had discovered one good, nay, great poem did set him up for a deeper kind of disappointment because from that day on, he knew that each letter might contain the next fake lake, but instead, there came huge volumes of non-great poetry, from repentant murderers in wormwood scrubs, from windsurfing instructors in love with all dogs, from disillusioned CBBC colorists, and so on. Not all the poems were actively bad, far from it. There was a ton of really competent poems, some days, in fact, all the poems seemed just oppressively passable. A suffocating competency. And Adam read them, everyone. Bad and okay and moderately good poems filled the flat. Piles of unopened letters under the coffee table, under the baby changing table, on the landing. It was a fire risk, his then wife said, and he agreed. So he began to read faster. Around this time, his child would only sleep in his bouncy chair, and so Adam sat in the lounge, opening letters, reading poems, while keeping one foot on the bouncer, boinging his child into oblivion. It should have been bliss. He loved poems. He was sure he did. But days passed, and Adam read a lot. In retrospect, nobody should read that many poems. <laughs> He did not wash, nor properly sleep, nor drink enough water, and in time was unable to joy, enjoy or in a way even comprehend language until suddenly, while the tail end of a tropical storm called Craig seemed to be having sex with all the trees in the park across the road, the next good poem did arrive, an unforgettably brilliant poem called Ghost Feast, and it moved Adam deeply, perhaps too deeply. It was suspicious how deeply it moved him, and he gazed in awe at his sleeping son, who was so beautiful and so finite, and his then wife came in and read the poem, which didn't seem to her, who did not much like poetry, to be particularly good, and was perhaps even quite bad, and he read Ghost Feast again and saw that she was right. <laughs> He had gone poem-blind. <laughs> Poem-blindness, his then-wife reminded him, was by far and away the best kind of blindness. <laughs> you've been reading these poems for weeks and you've only got one that you like, she said. Maybe you should just contact some good poets and ask them for good poems. He looked at his beautiful son, who had his own hand inside his mouth. And Adam Levin did reply, because then I will just be replicating existing hierarchies. And I won't do that. Gavin Henley was born and raised in North London, where he still lives. He's the author of nine collections and two selecteds. 
He's won every major UK poetry prize and long ago dispensed with modesty, either in public or private, because at some point you just have to admit that it's a waste of energy forever trying to offer a humble take on one's own achievements when one's own achievements are, by any objective measure, extraordinary. <laughs> he likes to sometimes give his weaker poems to small anthologies, like this one, as a goodwill gesture. He teaches on the Iowa Writers' Workshop and his latest collection is Internal Flight. Adam's son learned to roll over. His tiny son, who had to grunt like an Olympic weightlifter just to hold the weight of his own head, had learned to roll from front to back and look at the sky. It wasn't pretty, the rolling. He had to kind of throw the side of his head against the floor and hope the momentum would twist the rest of his body round. But it got the job done. Adam wept at the child's pragmatism. He had begun to weep at many things. Together, Adam and his wife went down to the garden and burned all the unopened poetry submissions. They borrowed their neighbor's green waste incinerator, which was a bin with a chimney in the top. The flames shot up, bright yellow and rasping. Ah, mediocre poetry, she said, and she warmed her hands. Burns so clean. And as they stood there, the flames scalded the cherry tree high above them, even setting fire to some of the lower, drier leaves, one of which broke loose and rose up into the sky, like the soul of an adequate poem set free to find a more nuanced resting place. <laughs> that night, Adam and his then-wife both slept for the first time in weeks for six unbroken hours and awoke feeling made of some new, high-tech material, super light yet durable. Adam got quickly out of bed and composed emails to tw 20 well-known, well-loved poets, asking them for poems. It was that easy. Yes, some of these poets represented exactly the establishment he'd been hoping to destroy, but life is sure. Why make things complicated? And as Adam typed, he hummed the chorus to the Avril Lavigne song, why do you have to go and make things so complicated? And chuckled to himself. Avril Lavigne, Adam Levin, their names were a bit similar. He was looking for a sign and here one was. And that night, for the first time in four months, Adam and his then wife indulged in the act that, that had created the creature that slept in a basket by the bed. The boy did not wake up at their noises. In fact, he seemed to sleep more deeply, his breath deepening as theirs shallowed, which was both beautiful and gross. <laughs> By the next morning, many of the poets had replied, and quite a few had asked, with varying degrees of euphemism, for money. This was, he conceded, totally reasonable, because if Adam valued art, and he valued it, then their art should have value. Adam was not personally wealthy, but his then-wife had a little family money. Her grandfather was credited as the inventor of the no-claims bonus, and ultimately... An anthology of this quality would surely sell a few thousand, and so he replied on a happy whim that he could pay each poet 50 pounds. It wasn't much, it wasn't nothing. 50 pounds, even to those poets who had not asked about money, because Adam was professional. 
Then the paid-for poems from the well-loved poets arrived. And it would be wrong to say they were brilliant. One or two were brilliant, or rather had brilliant stanzas, and many had good lines, or at least good titles, and almost all were ultra-competent. Lots of B-sides, not many singles. But still, Adam reminded himself, he had Joy Gould and her fake lake. Some poets invoiced at the same time as they sent their poems, which was presumptuous, but did save on admin. <laughs> Adam transferred money from the joint account and felt productive. This book only needs to sell a couple of thou and it's all gravy, he told his then wife, sounding nothing like the man she had married, hopefully in a good way. I thought nobody buys poetry, she said. Actually, it's a growing sector, he said, which was true. Sales are up 13% to 10.5 million pounds, he said. It's having a moment. Really, she said. He showed her the article about poetry having a moment, and she looked at it without really reading it because she loved him and trusted him. By the end of the week, he had spent 950 pounds on poet's fees. He had one more poet to pay, but his forefinger hesitated above the left mouse button because it did feel like a threshold, this move from a three-figure investment to four. He clicked and magically, instantaneously, the money wasn't his. Hey, relax, some people spend a thousand pounds on a pram, he told his baby son, though they had inherited their pram from Adam's sister, who in turn had bought it secondhand and there was a quite disgusting and or beautiful tide mark of head sweat from previous babies <laughs> that had bleached the headrest fabric in a pattern that was, if you were feeling kind, petal-shaped. <laughs> Adam Levin received many conventional biographies of 80 to 100 words. As each arrived in his inbox, he slotted them into the PDF file with a feeling of satisfaction, as though reaching the tail end of a long jigsaw, putting together an image that he had rather lost interest in, the Hamburg docks say, but the important thing was to complete it. There was one thing he was still excited about, and that was Joy Gould's biography. Discovering her had justified the whole project. Perhaps she was a diver, on the North Sea rigs. Perhaps she was an oyster farmer. Perhaps she had a less poetic job. Joy Gould, born 1975, is a Scottish poet and illustrator. She's studying for an MA in creative writing at St Andrews and working on a first collection. Adam Levin had been hoping for a little more colour. <laughs> he didn't want to put pressure on Joy, but couldn't she be, he hesitated to say, more Scottish, but just, you know, a little bit more textured. Adam Levin now had the completed manuscript. He began to read. Months of his life leading up to this moment. He read the book from front to back and back to front while his son lay on the jungle mat. And it was as his son began to laugh at absolutely nothing that Adam Levin recognized he felt not a single emotion. 
that might have been excusable if he had successfully discovered writers whose voices could not otherwise be heard, but he had not, except for Joy Gould, and even she was, he didn't want to admit it, but totally normal and discoverable seeming. Adam slid off his wheelie chair and lay on the floor beside his son, who had now started crying, and so it seemed acceptable for Adam Levin to do the same. His then wife came in. She picked up their son and rubbed his back. Now Adam was alone on the jungle mat. You're crying again, she said. Because I've made an incredible editorial decision, he said. And he dabbed his face with muslin. Hillel Sivenda is the author of the award-winning collection Double Bag Your Sadness. He received a long and impassioned email from the editor at 3.23 a.m. asking him to contribute to a conceptual anthology. He has never heard the phrase conceptual anthology before, but at 3.23 a.m., it sounded quite convincing. Hello again. As you approach the final few pages of this slim volume, Adam Levin believes you are asking... Where are the actual poems? <laughs> and Adam Levin would like me, his biographer, to say on his behalf, <laughs> poems are always better when they are not written down. <laughs> in this way, there is not a single poem in this book that does not perfectly reflect your life, because there is not a single poem in this book. And when the poems are all inside your head, your life becomes the poems, Adam Levin would like to propose. Explaining the idea of the conceptual anthology to your then wife. Great poem. Her asking for all her money. Poem. Her taking your son to stay with her parents in King's Lynn. Amazing poem. You moving into a flat above the pub down the road. Decent poem. Your beautiful son who will eat anything, chewing the corners of copies of this book that you hand-stapled and that are in boxes in your rented bedroom. Relatable poem. The boxes of books being your only furniture. Poem. Not bringing your son back to your then-wife at the allotted time. Funny poem. Pushing him in his pram all the way out to the seal colony at Holcomb Point with the wind-blown sand scouring your face and just as you get there your son screaming so fiercely that all 200 seals basking on the dark sand, 200 large mammals, some with tusks, turn and lollop into the ocean, probably disrupting their mating cycle. Poem. 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 It has to be a poem. Adam Levin was born in 1981 in Wivenhoe. He divides his time between King's Lynn and anywhere that isn't King's Lynn. Yeah.
So that's all from this episode of Imaginary Advice. Uh, thanks so much to my guest writers, Chris Hicks and Joe Dunthorne. Joe's new book, The Adulterance, is released in February 2018. It's available to pre-order now. Uh, thanks also to Eleanor McDowell and Zara Plessard for kindly agreeing to read parts of Joe's story with about five minutes notice before the show. Thank you so much uh, for your help. Thank you to Battersea Art Centre for helping me put on the event at, uh, at such short notice after my other venue fell through. And, and, and thanks to everyone who came out to the show. Um, I really, really loved it. I mean, you want to talk about making the invisible visible. Well, that door swings both ways. It was so great to meet people who listen to the podcast and who get something from it. Podcasting can be isolating sometimes. It's nice to find out that you're actually talking to someone. I think there's a really good atmosphere at the night. I think if you like imaginary advice, chances are you'll like other people that like imaginary advice. So I I, I do hope that people made some friends at the show. Um, I would love to do more of these. Uh, Please, like, uh, yeah, hit me up if you think it can work in your city. Uh, You can get me on rossgordonsutherland at gmail.com or message me on Twitter at Ross G Sutherland or contact me through the Imaginary Advice Facebook page. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, patron supporters, if you look out for those videos, they should be in your inbox any day now. Uh, always, thank you for your support. I, uh, I, I couldn't do it without you. If you want to join uh, my uh, my Patreon supporters, then check the link in the liner notes of this episode. And uh, any new supporters who, uh, who who sign up before the end of the year will um will get that new content too. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Ross Sutherland. Um, I'll be back in 2018 with more imaginary advice. Yeah.